Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of The Relative Perspective. I'm your host, Kim. Thanks for joining me. I'm conscious that it's been a really long time since I've had any time, actually, to sit down and plan a podcast episode, let alone record one. But I'm here now, and it's March, so I'm equally conscious that I the last episode I did was about New Year's resolutions, and this was going to be this was a New Year's resolution that I was going to be, uh, you know, committed and on it with this podcast, um, and that is still true. I just really struggled to find any time. Um, but here we are, and I'm back, not necessarily with a bang, I'm just back with this episode, uh, talking about something that's very important to me, but probably very dull to everybody else. So this episode, I'm going to be talking about my career to date, or life in law. Um, and yeah, in particular, I, I thought it'd be quite useful to sort of do a, a quick timeline and yeah, uh, talk about the route to law or the route into law that I took. And for any aspiring lawyers out there or any any other practicing lawyers that want to compare notes, then then this episode is for you. Um, I've had a somewhat uh, meandering journey to get to where I am, but I'm really excited to, to talk you through that career journey. And then following that, um, I want to pull it back round to what's relevant now, which is working from home or at least how the pandemic has impacted my career and my job on a, on a day-to-day basis and and ultimately that can be summarized because I yeah the pandemic has made me work from home which has never really been an option before um I've my colleagues have done it you know for the odd day uh, out of the week but generally it's it's not something that I wanted yeah ever wanted to do I never really I never asked for working from home flexibility uh, and then it was just thrust on me so yeah I'm going to be talking about that and, and ultimately the impact of the pandemic there are a few things that are quite sort of yeah that get me a bit hot under the collar I <laughs> maybe that's not the right turn of phrase to use um yeah I get I'm quite passionate about my job uh, and also the implications of working from home uh, on people as well. So as ever, I, I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope that some of it resonates with you. Um, if you're not inspired to be a lawyer, which I completely understand, um, at least, you know, I, I hope it encourages you to go and have conversations with colleagues, friends and family uh, to find out a little bit more about their journey uh, into doing whatever it is they're doing and and the impact of the pandemic on them uh, with a view to yeah just learning a little bit more about the people around you and and the way that the world is is coming out of this and and what the future ways of working are going to look like and yeah changes to the the world of work so without further ado uh, I'll begin with the episode and sort of a little mini feature <music> I thought I would begin this episode with a really odd story um, that really can only happen to me. So I have been assisting for the last month or so with a local newsletter and I, I introduced Kim's Corner and it wasn't a corner, it was basically half of this newsletter. But each week I found myself experiencing some calamity or drama 
and I decided to write about it. So I think the first first Kim's Corner I did was just how I can't look after plants. And then the second one I did was about my non-stick pan. And then, yeah, there was there was an incident outside my flat. So I'm I'm gonna read read my Kim's Corner for you, and that's how I'm starting this episode. So here goes. Law is the family business, or at least my family business. My granddad was a policeman, my dad was a policeman, and my brother is a policeman. I, on the other hand, and to my dad's utter dismay, went into the private sector to try and make some money out of law, and I became a solicitor. Uh, So I currently work from home, and working from home is normally very uneventful. But uh, a couple of Tuesdays ago, uh, Cumbria police also decided to work from my home. And here's what happened. So on Tuesday afternoon, I heard a commotion outside my flat and I peeped through the blinds and saw five police officers and an unmarked car in the yard at the back of my flat. An hour and a half later, I was gasping for a brew, so I went back downstairs and had another peep through my blinds, and I noticed that they were all still there. Uh, So I did about three minutes of peeping, and that allowed time, obviously, for my brew to brew, and then I went back up to my little home office. Um, Another hour or so later, I needed a bathroom break, (laughs) so I thought, I'm downstairs anyway, I'll have another peep. So uh, I went to the window and saw that they were still there and it was getting dark and it was getting cold. So I put on my shoes and I went round to the back of my flat and I just said, I'm not being nosy because I've already been peeping, but you've been here for ages and it's freezing and you know, I, I know what it's like. Well, I don't because I've not done it, but you know, my brother and my dad have done like scene guards and they've worked night shifts and it's cold and miserable. Uh, so I just said, can I get any of you a cup of tea or a, a coffee or anything at all? Anyway, this, this police officer turned around to, to her colleagues and said, um, she's offering to make tea and coffee. Does anyone want anything? And they all said, yes. So fast forward five minutes and I'm stood back in my kitchen making up a flask of coffee for five police officers and I took out my mugs I took out oh I emptied my biscuit tin and and I like filled the I filled the um, the cups with like penguin bars and things like that and yeah so I took these round and I took a gold paper cup round because I just thought oh they can throw that in the bin and yeah, a handful of chocolate biscuits and then handed everything over and warned them. I was like, oh, I'm just, I, I can't guarantee the structural integrity of the paper cup. Um, but I, I didn't want to bring around like all my china. So you've, you've got some cups there. Anyway, so they took my details and I headed back to my flat. And then within an hour, there was a knock at my door, which was so loud. I genuinely thought someone had come through it. And I opened the door and I was greeted by all five police officers returning my thermos and my cups. Um, I have to say it was nice of them not to nick off with my stuff. But I did think, given that I'd managed to carry this around by myself, that all five of them returning it was somewhat excessive. Um, 
But yeah, so that was that. And then they thanked me for the coffee and biscuits, which I thought was really sweet. So it wasn't a problem. And then proceeded to ask them. I was like, are you still out there? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we're still out there. And I was just like, well, you've been out there a while and now you've had something to drink. Would you like to, to use the bathroom? <laughs> so yeah, um, there we go. <laughs> as like uh boots off as uh, as they were traipsing through the flat but i actually live in a, um, a yard and there's there's like toilets in the yard like outdoor toilets so yeah i think a couple of them nipped in there as well but yeah so that was that was my tuesday a couple of weeks ago and i to this day i genuinely never found out what happened so i've i've asked a couple of people um if they could find out around ulverston but very, very peculiar, very odd. And and when I when I was leaving the house later in the evening, they were all still there. And I, I walked sort of past and then was greeted at the car park where my car is with, I think, two, two police vans. And one of them was a tactical support unit. And I just thought, this is, this is really quite excessive. This is a nice, nice place to live, what's going on. So yeah, that was my Tuesday a few weeks ago. But I thought that that was quite a nice introduction into, into my career because it was a, loosely related to the family business being law. This episode might not actually be of interest to very many people. It's a little bit niche and ultimately I'm going to be talking about my career to date and the impact of the pandemic on my working life. Uh, but equally, this episode was requested by a friend who wanted to know a little bit more about the work that I do and, and how I've ended up doing what I'm doing. So this recording is for you. Um, but equally, it might be of interest to aspiring lawyers and it might be of interest to lawyers out there already uh, if you want to compare notes. But for now I thought I would talk about um, yeah my career to date and I thought it might be useful to start with a bit of a timeline um, yeah to just kind of talk to you about how I've ended up where I am. And I've got quite an unusual story behind my legal career. So whenever I was in interviews sort of in the early stages they would ask why do you want to be a lawyer? I, I actually didn't ever have a very good answer because I used to watch two TV programs when I was younger. I used to watch Casualty on a Saturday night on BBC and I used to watch Heartbeat on a Sunday night on ITV. And there was a really dishy heartthrob police officer called PC Mike Bradley played by uh, the very handsome Jason Durr who uh, coincidentally is now in Casualty. Anyway, uh, Jason Durr used to ride around on a motorbike fighting crime in Aidensfield and Ashfordley. And yeah, I was absolutely in love with him. And then uh, a solicitor joined the TV show called Jackie Lambert. And she used to go down to the police station when Mike was interviewing people and she'd be there to do property stuff and wills and probate. And she was just the local solicitor. And her and Mike uh, started going out and then he proposed to her and uh, they got married. I to my dad, right, I need to be a solicitor because if I become a solicitor, Jason Durr will marry me, Mike Bradley will marry me. 
Um, I said, what do I need to do? He was like, off you go, university, you need to go and do law. So that was at the age of 10. And to this day, no one has told me that Jason Durr will not be proposing to me. Um, yeah, I'm still waiting for Jason and or Mike. <laughs> Obviously, I now recognise and realise that is not going to happen. But yeah, I decided to become a solicitor because I wanted my heartthrob from heartbeat to sweep me off my feet and, uh, and propose to me and, and marry me. Unfortunately for Mike, it did not work out and Jackie left him. She was having an affair with a solicitor down in London and I'm pretty sure I still remember the character's name. He was called Stephen, I think. Anyway, she told him and abandoned him in the middle of a forest and Mike was left brokenhearted and, uh, and they got a divorce. But that did not stop me. I'd made the decision to become a solicitor and... Um, and I knew how to do that. I knew I had to go to university to do law. Um, oh, I wish I'd have had other guidance uh, and someone would have told me. But I remember telling that story at a networking event and I did get some work experience out of it because they were just like, that's the most ridiculous reason um, ever for starting a law degree or a legal career. Anyway, so off to university I went. So obviously by this point, by the age of 18, I'd done GCSEs and, and A-levels. And I have to say every decision I ever made was geared towards what GCSEs, what A-levels would I need in order to be able to go to university and study law. Um, so I then went and did the UCAS applications. And on results day, I, um, I was offered a place um, at Northumbria University and that was it. Packed my bags off to university in, in September of 22... Wow, crikey, 2008. That's terrifying. So that was that. I was off. And I wa I remember walking through that lecture theatre door and there must have been 450 people easy in that theatre. It was absolutely huge. Um, and we were asked fairly early on, what what do you want to do? Do you want to do the, the bar or do you want to be a solicitor? Um, and the majority of people stood up and said, I want to be a solicitor, but I, I don't know what possessed me. I think, yeah, I just stood up and I, I said, I, I want to apply for the bar. I want to go and be a barrister. Um, and, and at the time, and, and to this day, they, they offer a standard law degree, um, and then a, a combined or an exempting law degree, which means you do uh, your postgraduate um, academic qualification alongside your undergraduate one. So yeah, I did my first year and then we were invited to apply for whichever course we wanted to do. So I put in my application to the bar and then did um, another application uh, for the solicitor option in the event that um, I, I wasn't able to get on to the bar. Um, but I did and I was successful and yeah, I think, I don't know how many applicants there were, but in the end there were 25 of us who took the MLaw exempting BPTC route and 13 of us graduated in 2012. So yeah, it, we'd really sort of filtered out those numbers. It was, it was quite scary the, the way that, yeah, the numbers had sort of dwindled and, and where people were going and, and what people were doing. Yeah, following graduation, um, at the same time, I'd, I'd done all of my qualifying sessions as well. Um, and in 
October 2012, I yeah, I'd, I'd done the I'd done the bar professional training course and all of my qualifying sessions, which are just yeah, you get to go to a very fancy hall and have some very expensive dinners uh, and listen to people uh, talk about advocacy or or their experience at the bar or it, there might be sort of a yeah some arts and and things going on and you do a bit of networking yeah and and it's it's you know they're fantastic weekends in London or, or wherever your qualifying sessions might be and you, you do 12 of these and then yeah I was called to the bar in October 2012 and I was with my family and yeah, I had a wig and a gown on and yeah, signed a piece of paper and that was a very special moment. Uh, but prior to that, I, yeah, was frantically trying to find a job. I, I hadn't, I didn't have a graduate job. I didn't have a legal job lined up for when I um, graduated, but I went for quantity rather than quality and updated my CV and, and registered with so many um, yeah, recruitment firms and, and various things like that. And was just sort of determined to find a legal job and, and get on that legal ladder. Um, and yeah, was invited to interview for a job in the central legal team as an analyst at, uh, the international law firm Eversheds. Started there in 2012 and worked with a fantastic group of people. Uh, we went out on a Friday after work, um, I just, it was, it was a really great environment. I was in a law firm and I was learning about processes that went around legal advice, um, dealing with sort of searches and working for clearing banks and reviewing security documents and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, I think it was just a really great step from university to the world of work in particular, um, yeah, private practice and, and working in a law firm. Uh, but I, I was conscious that I really needed to build on that legal um, experience. And the next step from there was to find a paralegal position. And nine months after starting at Eversheds, uh, a paralegal position came up within uh, the real estate team. And I spoke to my uncle and he said to me, if I were you, I would find out who's recruiting because you are an internal candidate and just get in touch with them and introduce yourself and, and ask if you can go for a coffee um, and, and yeah, just talk to them about what you're doing in, in the company at the moment and so on and so forth. And I did and it paid off and I ended up uh, having quite an informal interview with a couple of people in the team and then lo and behold, been offered a job um, as a paralegal in the real estate team, um, building on that experience uh, that I'd had sort of, yeah, 200 meters down the corridor and doing property searches, um, sort of minor uh, property transactions and a lot of post-completion work and then um, administrative tasks on huge um projects and, and big property portfolio work. So yeah, that was, and, and, and in that and amongst that, it was building on that legal experience and building up my legal CV. And I met again, the very best of people, um, you know, really good friends to this day. So 
yeah, that was really quite something. But equally, I, I was conscious that I'd done the bar and I was naturally quite good at advocacy and yes, opinion writing and research and all of that kind of stuff. And I wasn't, I still wasn't applying for pupillage. I was still just trying to get as much experience as possible so that I would be able to stand out from, from other candidates really. And I looked around and, and a lot of my colleagues were, were either doing the LPC or they'd done the LPC and they were about to move on to training contracts. And I just realized that that wasn't an option for me at Eversheds. Um, and that it was it was probably time for me to move on. Um, so I had a bit of a, a stopgap in a litigation only firm, but it was it was very brief. Uh, and then I went in house. I took a job in house um, as a litigation and escalated complaints executive at a parcel delivery company. And I, I've got my mum to thank for this. She she found the job out of nowhere on Indeed. And yeah, I put in an application. Uh, and met with the head of the legal team and sort of head of customer services at the time uh, and was given a, a few different activities and then interview questions and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, I started there in 2014 and ultimately my job was to get involved when things went wrong. So my day job was largely to run a portfolio of small claims and defend the business against individuals who had used the money claim online service uh, to bring a legal claim for breach of contract against the business. Uh, I very quickly learned uh, which claims were worth fighting, which claims were or should be settled. Um, I, I sort of had an idea of value and, and the merit of people's arguments and, and various issues like that. But the one thing these individuals had had in common is that their customer experience or that the service that they had received from the company was so poor and that something had gone so badly wrong that you know, they, they felt that they had no other option than to take the company to court to get compensation that they deserved for breach of contract. But the difficulty with that is I was generally up against litigants in person who didn't understand the court system or didn't understand contract or breach of contract and various things like that. Um, and sometimes it, it didn't feel like a particularly fair fight because I was well prepared you know, well scripted, well trained, and yeah, I've I had an unbroken win rate as well, which was yeah, pretty cool. Uh, but equally, I think that's just a, a measure of of the fact that well, my my first claim I lost, and the feeling was that bad, I was determined never to go through it again. And then the second reason is I just became really good at knowing which fights to to yeah to battle out. And, and yeah, knowing which claims were, were not worth settling or, or where something had gone so wrong where, where the company should take some responsibility and ownership. So yeah, through that, I, I gained an awful lot of advocacy experience. I was traveling up and down the country. Um, and yeah, I was just, yeah, getting involved in all kinds of things. And then I started to get involved with broader breach of contract issues with suppliers and with customers. And from there, I then started getting involved in contractual matters and general legal advice. And then, yeah, I, my boss sat me down and said, you know, 
you're picking up all of these other matters and your role's expanding and uh, you know we're really happy with you and we want to invest in you and 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 sponsor you and and take you through a training contract and university and we want you to be a solicitor in the team and please go away and think about it and also think about what that involves and and what you need to do so I I did a bit of research and, and decided to go back to uh, university in BPP and do the LPC, uh, so the legal practice course. Uh, but because I'd already done the bar, I had quite a few exemptions because I'd done quite a few modules already. So yeah, I went back to university part time. I worked full time. I had no spare time, uh, but yeah, managed to <laughs> to pass the LPC and and then start my training contract. So I did a. 18 month training contract. Uh, a training contract is essentially an apprenticeship, apprenticeship, put my teeth back in, uh, for solicitors. And yeah, they're normally 24 months long, so two years long, and you do what are called seats. And your seats are six months long, where you spend time in a particular area of practice. And then at the end of your two year period, you decide which one you liked the most and which one interested you. And that's what you qualify into. And then you spend the rest of your career doing that. So I went to a regional law firm and absolutely loved it. Um, I spent time in the employment team and with the property team. And it was a really fantastic firm really wonderful people, really brilliant clients and yeah, just such really good quality work and, you know, really, really enjoyed that time and enjoyed being in the city as well. And then following that, I I went back uh, to my previous job and just had general commercial experience and advocacy experience and uh, yeah, um, picked up uh, new business contracts and and more interfacing with with suppliers and customers. So, yeah, it was it. I, I you know, I was the first person to do a training contract at this company, and I I think we built a really great learning program. Um, and I couldn't have done that without without the investment and the support of the company either. Um, and it was a a really you know, it was hard work, but it was you know, it was absolutely worth it. And yeah, I, you know, that program is still there for for the right person to to progress along as well now. So that's that's a pretty cool, I wouldn't say a legacy, it's not entirely mine, but it's nice to be the first and to sort of, yeah, be a bit of a guinea pig in that as well. But in 2019, uh, I don't know why I said but, but, <laughs> but it's true. In 2019, on the 1st of April, uh, I finally qualified uh, as a solicitor and it was really quite an unusual feeling because, you know, I was 10, 11 years old when I decided I wanted to be one and I was 29 uh, when I qualified. So it's taken the best part of 19 years to to sort of get to, to that goal. Um, and it was it was really quite special because it had taken that long and it was all that hard work and effort. And at three o'clock, my name was printed on the role of solicitors and that was really exciting. But equally, it was quite anticlimactic because I was, yeah, I just kind of sat there going, oh, that's it now. What on earth do I do now? Oh, this is it. This is what I'm doing now. So yeah, I just, (laughs) I think that kind of then 
yeah, prompted a, a bit of a crisis where I, I just kind of felt I needed a bit of a life change. And uh, I'd been offered a job where I was, but equally, I, I think I was ready for a new challenge because I very much felt that the job that was on offer wasn't actually any different to the job I'd been doing for the last two, maybe even three years. Um, and I, part of me looks back and I think, oh, would it have just been nice to have something comfortable that I could have done with my eyes closed? But actually, because I'd gone from, you know, just wanting to be a solicitor so badly to to then being a solicitor, I was like, oh, maybe I do need a, a bit of a challenge. I, but whatever it was um, and whatever manifested in the world, recruiters started calling me and um, and within a very short period of time, uh, I was invited to interview at the company I'm at now, headed over to the Lake District a couple of times. And yeah, I was I was offered a job as legal counsel and I was newly qualified and, you know, you know, my technical ability back in 2019 is you now nothing like it is now. And but they I think they just kind of said, you know, we can take her and we can mould her into the solicitor we, we want and need her to be. And if we get her well, she's young and doesn't have any sort of bad habits or anything, then, you know, that's that's a good starting point And, you know, they could pay you less because you're, you're fairly junior. So, yeah, I mean, very good, very good offer. Um, it was worth moving for. But, yeah, so I, I joined a you know, effectively a FTSE 100 company. Now, I can't really say very much about my current job. Uh, you know, if you find me on LinkedIn, then then you find me on LinkedIn. But uh, for the purposes of the, this podcast and for security reasons, I cannot tell you about my job. I have signed the Official Secrets Act. So my job is quite cool. Uh, but ultimately, on a day-to-day basis, I provide uh, legal advice and uh draft and negotiate contracts uh, and various other legal business commercial type things um, specializing in compliance matters and uh, intellectual property and, and things like that and those are the kind of things that I dabble in and I provide I provide that advice and I, I do my job to enable um, yeah activities on site that enable us to to build our products and deliver to our customer. So yeah, I have to be vague because of security reasons. Uh, but yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoy my job. And yeah, it's, um, it's no two days are the same, but I think that's one of the best things about being in-house as well. Uh, you are, a, I guess, jack of all trades, master of none, but it's, it's just really good to get under the skin of a business and understand strategy and, and how yeah, why businesses make the decisions that they do uh, from an internal perspective. Uh, and in-house as well, you you don't just have the role of a lawyer. You are a project manager and you have to have your, you know, your sights on all kinds of angles that, you know, whether it's commercial or financial. And, and whilst that's not within your remit, it's always good to ask those questions and get people to get answers to them to to formulate your advice as well. So yeah, it keeps me on my toes. Um, and I do really enjoy it. And I'm trusted with, you know, huge value and hugely complex issues. Um, so yeah, I yeah, it's it's kept me going. It's been really important to me during the pandemic. I have worked during the whole pandemic. And uh, yeah, it's it's contributed to my uh, retention of sanity, I think. 
So that's where I am now. I work for a company. I'm a solicitor. My title is legal counsel. And yeah, that's, I'm in practice. Uh, but I, I think I've, I think I've kind of made it fairly clear how to get to, to that point. But to summarize, um, there are different types of lawyers and, and the term lawyer is, is in, is completely American and it ultimately just means someone that practices law. But in the UK, there are generally sort of four different types of lawyers. You've got a paralegal who is largely, um, you know, a really skilled, um, for want of a better term, assistant to a law firm, solicitors and various things like that. And they provide, yeah, so much sort of depth and assistance to to various matters that you're working on, whether it's legal research or searches on property or uh, post-completion, whatever it might be. Um, so that's that's something that you can go into. Alternatively, you might want to be a legal executive. I think the official term is chartered legal executive. Um, and I think there's some conveyancing in there as well, uh, or conveyancer. Uh, I'm not sure if they're one in the same thing. Um, it's sometimes really difficult to to distinguish between the professional title and the the title that you have in a job. But obviously, the 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 two big ones, aside from judges at the other end of the spectrum, uh, are your solicitors and barristers. Uh, so I, uh, to become a solicitor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can either do a law degree or you can do any other degree plus a legal diploma called the GDL. Uh, following that, you then do uh, the legal practice course, which is sort of the postgraduate academic qualifications that are needed. You then do a training contract, which is an apprenticeship for solicitors. It's usually between 18 and 24 months long. Um, and on qualifying, you then pick or on completion of that, you then pick a seat to qualify into, and that's what you go into practice doing. And there's so much you can choose from. You can go into uh, private clients, so you would be dealing with uh, personal estates and wills and trusts and things like that. You might want to go into property litigation uh, and property disputes, uh, property law and general commercial advice. You might want to be a general commercial person or a corporate person and advise on how businesses buy and sell and uh, company transactions. Uh, there's family law, employment law. There's just every kind of law you could possibly think of. Um, and then, yeah, uh, you then go into practice. And in the middle of that, you, you do things called um, professional skills course. So you, you go back to um, a university or a, another learning provider, and then you spend time just sort of honing your skills academically and you, you take a couple of uh, exams and then that's it. You're, you're done and you're expected to continue your continued professional development year upon year uh, and attend, you know, training seminars and, and just, yeah, monitor your own development and set objectives with your employer and, and you know, stretch assignments and things like that to, to ensure that you're continuing to develop through your career. The other alternative is to become a barrister. Um, so I did a law degree. Uh, and then I did the bar professional training course, but I think it's got a new name now. Oh, and I think the other thing to mention is if you're becoming a solicitor now, you've also got to do the solicitor qualifying exam. It's basically a super exam of every law 
and how to be a solicitor that you could possibly get onto a load of multiple choice questions. So that's another thing to consider and another expense to consider when you are trying to qualify as a solicitor. And I think that's probably worth mentioning as well. Um, you know, your degree going to university is really, really expensive. Um, and I think some law firms have started to introduce uh, apprenticeships um, that can lead to qualifications and um, entry into the profession. Um, I know that the law firm I was at when I was doing my secondment had this program and it was absolutely phenomenal. And the, yeah, the people that were, were going through the program have gone on to do incredible things. Um, so, yeah. There's, there, it is, it's, it's expensive. It's really expensive. Uh, the LPC, uh, back when I was doing it, I think is about 12,000 pounds. Uh, the bar was about 15. So yes, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but yeah, I did, I did a plus your, obviously your, your degree and, uh, and the costs each year for that. So I did uh, a law degree and then I did a bar professional training course, this obviously being the first time around. And yeah, that's, those, are, those are the academic qualifications you need to be a barrister. You then do 12 qualifying sessions as well, uh, usually down in London, but they can be hosted elsewhere. And then, and that is a 12 month um, period of practical training uh, under the watchful eyes of a more senior barrister um, in chambers. Name of the game after you've completed what is an eff effectively an apprenticeship for barristers is to then get tenancy in chambers and you would pick up yeah, your own claims and, and your own cases. And yeah, you get your own files with ribbons on and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you'd spend a lot of time, um, and a long time at the junior end. Um, but with, you know, the option to then take silk and become a QC, uh, so Queens council. Um, yeah. And, and be a judge after that. I think, I think solicitors can be a judge. That might be, might be something I think about in future. Uh, but someone actually asked me today if I retain my higher rights of audience by virtue of the fact that I was called to the bar. Um, but I'm, I'm, I was a barrister at law, but I never practiced as a barrister. I, I practiced as a solicitor, um, but not as a barrister. So I don't think I get to retain my higher rights of audience, but equally I, I don't really do litigation in the same way that I used to now. If, if things go wrong, we, we usually find obviously a, a commercial settlement rather than um, taking things to court. So yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I don't really do litigation in the same way that I did before. I don't think I would, I would need my higher rights of audience. We would just, I presume, just farm that out, farm that work out externally to, to lawyer, uh, well, to a law firm, a litigation firm or litigators and, and counsel as well. So yeah, they're the roots into law. It's time consuming, it's hard work and it's really expensive. So think really hard if that is something that you want to do. I think the other thing to mention that might be quite off-putting is the questions that you get asked <laughs> when you say, oh, I'm a solicitor or oh, I'm a lawyer. Um, the first is, the difference between the two. Um, so yeah, you've got, 
your solicitors and your barristers. And I, I think that a barrister is to a solicitor what a, uh, a surgeon is to a GP or, or another doctor. So the doctor will do all of the background work and the legwork and the research and the diagnosis. And then the surgeon will come in and, you know, steal the glory and fix your heart or, you know, perform brain surgery or, you know, mend a leg. And yeah, they get all the glory. So <laughs> that's what I think the distinction is between the two. Um, one is not better than another. Uh, they just do different roles uh, and they're qualified in different ways and have different sets of skills and there's some overlap. Um, but yeah, there you go. Lawyer is the generic American term. Got me thinking about other questions that I have been asked or, or get asked regularly. Uh, my personal favourite, which always comes up at a party, <laughs> is how can you defend someone? that you know is guilty. And I, I'm here to answer this question for the final time. You can't. You can't defend someone you know is guilty. Barristers operate on something called the cab rank rule, which means they have to accept any instruction that comes through the door. If that instruction, if that person then walks through the door and says, I've just murdered X, they have confessed to that crime. And whilst the barrister is bound by confidentiality of that client, he can't, he or she can't then go into court and turn around and say, my client enters a plea of not guilty. My client is not guilty for the following reasons, because that would mislead the court because your client has admitted to you that they have committed that crime and that they are guilty. Um, so a barrister's first and foremost duty is always to the court and you cannot mislead the court in any way, shape or form. So you'd have to recuse yourself. You wouldn't be able to take the claim. You wouldn't be able to defend that individual. Um, and, and that is ultimately underpinned by, you know, the idea that you're, well, it's not the idea, the rights that you have to uh, a fair trial and to be represented and the presumption of innocence. Um, and yeah, you are innocent until proven guilty. So yeah, I can't, I would never be able to defend someone who I knew was good. I might have an inkling that they're a bit bent. Um, but that, that isn't, that isn't a fact. That's just a feeling. <laughs> so yeah, that hopefully that answers that question for all future parties uh, that I happen to go to where people ask that question. Uh, what else? What else is? Um, oh, my my next one. Is it like the TV? No, I think just <laughs> that is a really. It's not. It's not like suits. Other than sometimes we wear suits. I work from home. I. <laughs> it's a miracle if I like put a full outfit on. I'm generally in leggings. Um, and I did tell my boss that I would not be coming back to work in the office if I had to put a bra on. So yeah, that's, that's the other thing. So no, no, it's not like the television. Um, and yeah, I don't, I can't even think of a show that's a bit like what it's like in real life. Um, no, I think it's, yeah, no, I don't think there is one. 
I did, I did, don't get me wrong, I do like these legal programs. I, I loved Silk when it was on. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I think that, oh, they brought out sort of, um, well, oh, they've done, they've done quite a few sort of pilots for legal dramas and various things like that. Uh, North Square and, and, and loads of other things that some have taken off and some haven't. So yeah, Suits is obviously the big one. Um, but you can't, you can't walk around pretending you practice law when you don't practice law and when you're not, um, you don't have a license. We all have, yeah, we have a license to practice law. So that's that. Uh, the next one, can you give me some advice on X, Y, and Z? No, I'd also no, not really. Um, I can, I can probably find you an answer because that's what I'm trained to do, to, to do that legal research and, and by deduction and analysis of the information that you give me, come up with an answer and come up with some solutions and, and find a way forward. That is what I do on a daily basis for the company I work for. That's the extent that my insurance covers me and my practicing license covers me to deliver advice to the company I work for. Um, so if you're asking me about a family matter or an employment law matter or a housing issue or whatever it might be, yeah, I can find an answer, but you can't rely on it completely because I'm not, A, it's not my area of qualification. I don't practice it every day. Therefore, I'm not an expert. And B, I, my insurance just doesn't cover it. What if you then turn around and say, oh yeah, I've, I relied on Kim. She said that I had been holed up in front of the SRA. So no, no, I can't give you any advice on anything that's not related to, to, to what I do for a living. Um, so yeah, they're my, they're my top questions. They're the top three. If you've got any more, get in touch. I'm happy to answer them. I'll do a live on Instagram or something like that, but they'll just, they'll just be me. They'll just be me talking into a microphone much like this. But yeah, so that is my career to date. That's what I do. And yeah, it's time to talk about the impact of the pandemic, because that is the point of the relative perspective. All of this has been triggered by the pandemic. And so this, this next bit, I'm going to talk about, yeah, what it's been like, um, and the impact of the pandemic and largely, um, it's been working from home. So that's what we're going to talk about next. On the 23rd of March 2020, like millions of people across the country, I was unceremoniously sent home to work from home until further notice. And I remember leaving the office going, oh, this will be over in two weeks. Um, but obviously it was not. So I packed up my desk, um, all my IT equipment, uh, headsets, keyboards, all that kind of stuff and uh, yeah packed a box together took everything to the car and set up shop literally in my dining room so i was renting a little terrace house uh, in alveston at the time and i didn't have a desk i didn't have a chair uh, i had broadband and and obviously running water and electricity uh so yeah i um i started working from home and the company I work for, you know, obviously business continuity is absolutely essential and they prioritised activities 
particularly on site to to figure out how to deal with people on site and how to continue building our products so that we could be on time and uh, on schedule uh, to our customer and delivering those products. Uh, but equally, um, the IT infrastructure wasn't set up uh, to, yeah, house. I think it was between three and 6,000 people um, all of a sudden. Uh, no, yeah, that number of people had never worked from home before. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the done thing. So the the infrastructure, the IT was absolutely creaking at the seams because people hadn't needed to log on. So in the background the the IT teams were um yeah, just trying to sort of solidify and, and increase that bandwidth and, and those licenses that were available so that people could connect remotely and therefore continue doing their jobs so that people on site could do could do theirs and you know our our jobs as back office functions are enabling uh, other people to to get on with their jobs by by doing ours so you know it was an absolutely incredible response from from the business that I work in we, we implemented our own test track and trace um, system that allowed people to work safely from the office the people who were deemed critical to programs that we have running um executives um or at least the the management committee were were on site they had their own offices they were able to social distance uh you know real example of leading leading by example and and then people worked from home um you know were really productive and have continued to deliver and you know we've we've just had really strong financial results being published so you know and, and that has been consistent for for a number of years since pe- since people were sent home. So it's it really is a testament to the way that you know the people of the business pulled together and 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 the direction and the directions that they that the business gave. Um, so that was sort of the immediate impact on on my working life. I was suddenly went from the office to not in the office. And equally, as a as a newly qualified solicitor, I went from having you know, support from colleagues and I was able to network and I was able to just learn by way of osmosis and be sat in the office and have a bit of banter with people and, and pick up new instructions and, and yeah, network. And all of that went away. I had to very quickly adapt to doing all of that over the phone and and building and then maintaining and, and sustaining new working relationships with with people that I'd never met before and it makes me think you know how on earth have people started new jobs during the pandemic and and have joined teams and they've never physically met any of their colleagues um I think this is probably the closest that I've got to that that I was you know newly qualified new to the business I was only in the office for six months before yeah before we were sent home so yeah, it's. I think that then sort of leads into the medium term implications. And again, one of the reasons behind this podcast is this isn't something that's been talked about very much because it is what it is. There isn't very much data about it. And we're all still trying to fumble our way through and, and figure out what things are going to look like. So obviously it was working from home, which comes with as many benefits as it does downfalls. So you have, 
you know, flexibility. You can nip out to the shops at a lunchtime. You can go to the post office. You can run some errands. You can put your washing on. Um, but equally, you might have to homeschool. So you've got children running around while you're trying to deal with quite critical and time sensitive and and equally confidential matters and you've got children running around your house in the background and and you simply cannot do sort of those two things at once um you've then got change and people are like oh yeah I, I respond really well to change I thrive on it I can adapt well and absolutely we can but it, it takes some time to just figure out what's going on and, and which way is open and yet new routines so I went from you know being up fairly early in the morning uh, getting ready driving to work having some time to think parking walking to the office getting on site logging on um and actually moving my body and having time to think. And that was my routine. I would then do a full day's work and then head home, you know, stopping off at the gym or going for a run on the way. And all of that went. So I was moving my body less. Um, and I wasn't, you know, the minute I woke up, I was thinking about work. I wasn't switching off because I was, I was just, work was in the house and it was just so easy to just carry on and, and, and not take a break and, and not look away from your screen. And that then leads to, you know, huge health implications. So there's, um, there's this thing called, I think it's 20, 20, 20 that you can do in relation to your vision. So every 20 minutes you should look up away from your screen, um, and, stare at something and look at something 20 meters away for 20 seconds so that you're you're resting your eyes and you're not straining your eyes on the computer and and various things like that so you know that's your health starts to take an impact and you're walking less and you might be gaining weight but certainly things feel very stiff and particularly if you've not got a proper chair with proper support and and having the right equipment is a huge huge bugbear of mine um, you know, employers have a responsibility to their employees, irrespective of whether or not they are on site. And by and large, businesses are absolutely meeting those duties and doing what they should be doing. Um, but there's so much room for improvement. Um, one particular business in mind, uh, you know, they, they offered to, to buy their employees a chair to facilitate working from home and offered uh, roughly £84 to do that. Well, when you look at the cost of an ergonomic chair with arms or, or various things like that, a really good quality one, they're £150 to, you know, £350, £400. I've just had a, an occupational health assessment and I have been sent a brand new chair, which on the website is showing as £450. And it just makes me think, what was £84 supposed to buy me? And then in addition to that, you know, the, the, the business never, you know, this business never made any mention of, of paying for a desk. So I've got the chair, but what am I supposed to put it up against? The kitchen table, the kitchen counter, my bed, um, a sofa, uh, you know, do I buy my own desk? And, and in my case, I did buy my own desk. I ended up getting a little something from Ikea, but that wasn't without disaster. So I bought the, the top and then you had to buy the legs separately. So I put the, the order in the basket and I bought one leg because I thought they came in packs of four and there wasn't any information that suggested they didn't come in packs of four. 
Um, and then, yeah, I went to go and collect my order. One leg. I was like, oh, that's, well, that just won't stand up right. I mean, I'm not very good at DIY, but I'm fairly certain it needs four legs. So I was like, what am I supposed to do? Just pile up a, a load of contracts and a load of old law books for the other three legs. So yeah, that's just the kind of, these kind of little bugbears. Um, and yeah, equipment is really, really important. And, and Dr. Alex George did a, a reel on his Instagram ages and ages ago, but he said, you know, the importance of having the right equipment and right office environment and office setup is, is critical to productivity. And, and I, I thought, you know, he, he was advertising some really great equipment and ergonomic keyboards and various things like that. And I just thought that's all well and good. But what if individuals don't actually have the space in their studio apartment or they don't have space to work from home? They don't have an appropriate office environment and, and working from home isn't good for them. Um, their productivity, their health um, or in, in any aspect. So, you know, it, it really made me think about that as well. The other thing and, and the other bugbear that I've, I've got is, is the cost of working from home as well and it's estimated that a third of your time is spent working from home which means a third of your electricity is used to power your computer to power your broadband your broadband is used a third of the time for work you'll boil the kettle you'll use running water you'll go to the loo um, and you'll you'll keep a, a hopefully a, a nice clean and safe environment for yourself but businesses aren't or not all businesses I know that some are are not contributing to those increased costs so to put that in perspective uh, some surveys have been done and and the the data that's available is really quite broad ranging it ranges from five pounds a month to 43 pound and 60 pence per month that's the cost of working from home and even looking at the minimum you know you're not telling me that businesses can't contribute 60 pound towards you know yeah your in, your increased costs particularly when they're able to reduce the floor plate and and aren't re don't require everyone to be on site and you know they can renegotiate their rents or they can turn off lights and in, in you know certain part that you know the their bills are, are cheaper um you know but then you, you look at you look at your broadband a third of your time is spent using your broadband for work purposes now the average cost of broadband in the country is 26 pounds a month or 312 pounds a year that roughly equates to uh, if you divide that by three it's uh, roughly nine pounds a month or 104 pounds a year and again you know it, you know are businesses completely unable to pay or contribute £104 a year uh, to, uh, to, your, to your broadband bill, without which you would not be able to do your job? Um, you know, that's, that's £104 of your money to get the job done. Um, and I just, I, th I think the other thing that concerns me as well is, you know, imagine you've had a power cut or your broadband isn't working and you can't work, you can't connect to the, the network at all. And in those circumstances, what, what are businesses expecting of their employees? Do they expect them to take time off, uh, holiday, uh, unpaid leave? And, and if so, you know, are, 
are broadband providers or electricity companies going to going to compensate individuals for the fact that they haven't been able to do their job or they've lost a day's holiday through no fault of their own just by virtue of the fact that the power went down um and it, it does it it poses these larger questions and i think there's some extent to which you you just absolutely open a can of worms or whether there might not be any mileage to these arguments because the issues are just you know so far reaching but i find it extremely frustrating that a lot of companies turn around and say we're not paying the bills because you are saving money on commuting and i think that argument and that response is really quite weak because if you walk to work or you cycle to work you run to work whatever and there are no costs incurred what you're not saving anything but you know a bit of time but you might be you know a morning early riser anyway so i just i find that argument yeah quite feeble and a bit bitter to swallow if i'm perfectly honest but as I mentioned before, there are so many benefits and so much flexibility to, to working from home. And I was reading um, a Claro article and uh, something on Stylist as well. And this is a once in a generation opportunity to think about future ways of working and flexibility and not necessarily forcing the hand of employers or industry but making them consider other perspectives and and ways of working and I just think it's really you know the flexibility and, and the opportunities that come with it I for instance could take a take a job in London and live up in the Lake District and and only be required to be in the office once a month there are so many remote opportunities available you could you know live and work abroad uh, that would be an option as well. So, you know, there's there's a lot to to discuss, and you know, lots to find out about what businesses want to do and, and and where the world's heading. I, you know, it's I'm not saying that that law is or that employment law is going to change. Uh, law changes at quite a glacial pace generally, um, but you know what happens on the ground and what happens in practice and in your employment contract is is ultimately what matters and there is obviously this this framework these statutory frameworks of employment law that surround that but they might change over time or you could just have these conversations with your line managers who will have it with their managers and there'll be these feelings and solutions and you know really you know, the best people within the businesses will come together and, and find a comfortable solution that will work for the majority of people. And, and there will be flexibility in that. And that is the importance of, you know, having a think about how you feel about it and the impact of you, of the pandemic on, on what you're doing right now and, and your job and the good bits and the bad bits and what you want to take forward and, and then having those conversations, both in a professional and personal capacity. And that leads to change and it leads to better understanding. And you're able to, you know, understand what you want and manage your own expectations as well. But as I say, there's there's loads of really great stuff and, and, and just as many benefits as there are issues with, with working from home. And, and maybe 
that reward or can't be seen in pounds, shillings and pence and, and maybe the flexibility and, and finding a better work-life balance is, is what you get out of working from home. Um, so on that note, as I said, do have a think about the impact of the pandemic on you and your career and your job. And have you started a new one? Are you one of these people that have just been brave enough to, to start a job remotely? Um, get in touch if you had, I've, uh, I'd love to hear about your experience. Uh, but equally, you know, have a, yeah, have a think about the impact on you and then go and have conversations with other people. What have they been doing during the pandemic in terms of work? Um, have they been on the front line? Um, are they classed as key workers, essential workers? Um, what has working meant for them during the pandemic? Have people picked up side hustles? Um, are they are they running businesses? Have they benefited from furlough? And so many questions and really great conversations that hopefully you know this this podcast episode might open up. So I really hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, yeah, as ever, I really enjoyed getting this off my chest. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you and speak to you again soon. Thank you very much for coming back for episode six. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, uh, please feel free to get in touch uh, and or leave a review. Uh, This podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify and Apple. And I think there are a few other different platforms it's available on as well. So for now, thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you again soon. Bye bye.